Welcome to This Being Human. I'm your host, Abdurrahman Malik. On this podcast from the Aga Khan Museum, I talk to extraordinary people from all over the world whose life, ideas, and art are shaped by Muslim culture. There's a new generation that has a very unique perspective to how they see themselves as young Muslims in the modern world. I am this wide-eyed girl. I'm like, I want it all. I want to experience it all. Everyone has a story. Sometimes you just have to find out what it is. Like the poem that inspires this podcast, The Guest House, by Sufi poet Jalaluddin Rumi, we're talking to people who seek meaning and joy in work and life, regardless of what the day brings. In what might be Anida Yur Ali's most well-known work, she dressed up as an orange worm-like creature that looked sort of like a giant retractable paper lantern. And she went off into the world, interacting with people and provoking responses. Pictures from the project show her riding in a cart in the Cambodian countryside, visiting temples, climbing a fire escape, and surrounding children in a classroom. It's surreal and it's funny but it gets at serious issues, feelings of displacement and the struggle between the influence and tensions of Islam and Buddhism in her life. What is this diasporic dilemma that I am feeling? This feeling of being so caught in the insider-outsider notions and the idea of being here and there, the idea of what is it gonna take to kind of connect these seemingly disparate things that are always at odds with each other. Anida Yur Ali is a Muslim Khmer artist born in Cambodia. Her parents fled the genocidal regime of Pol Pot when she was a child and raised her in hyper-diverse multicultural Chicago. You don't hear about Khmer Muslims very much. In fact, being Muslim and Khmer means being a minority wherever you are. Anitha's work has sought not only to connect her with her rich past, but to create connection and community in the present. As an adult, she returned to Cambodia, where she co-founded Studio Revolt, an artist-run media lab in Phnom Penh. In addition to her public performances, Anitha works in many disciplines, video, photography, installations, poetry. She's a bit of a renaissance woman. I reached her in Tacoma, Washington to talk about cross-cultural creativity, her relationship with Cambodia, and of course, about the Buddhist book. At the time in 2009 was when I started to think about this work. And I had just given birth to my first daughter, my first child. And I was, of course, a graduate student being a mother at the same time. And it was a challenge. And so we had this one moment of joy with my daughter where we were gifted this tunnel, this play tunnel. It was a collapsible play tunnel. It kind of looks like a laundry chute. I and love she those loved things. it. <laughs> yes, because, you know, you can spread it out and it sprawls and then you can collapse it, Velcro it and tuck it away. And so I loved 
this thing and my daughter loved it. And then I looked at this thing for a long time. So that's like one moment. Another moment is as a diasporic individual, you know, I have this back and forth relationship with Cambodia. And when I finally went to Southeast Asia for the first time as an adult, now keep in mind, my family left in such violent circumstances when I was five years old. I have very, very few memories. But when I went back at the age of 30 for the first time in the early 2000s, I was floored with the colors of the country. And the one color that stood out was the orange. And it was the first time in my life that I was so overwhelmed by this color, not just for its beauty and the way that it drew me, but it was also that this realization that, oh my God, like my parents left a country that was 98% Buddhism with their Islam, and that was the one thing that they wanted to pass down. I didn't understand how important it was for them to hold on to this religion and pass it because, you know, we did not really go with the Cambodian community that was in Chicago. My parents put us with the Muslim community and It didn't hit me until returning to Cambodia for the first time, like, oh my gosh, like, I knew we were Cambodian, but I didn't know that we were that kind of Cambodian, like that we were the ethnic minorities. And essentially, I've created a a creature that embodies the diasporic dilemma by being a creature that can collapse and coil into a ball similar to my experience as a refugee and coming with nothing but the clothes on our backs and then sprawl and take up this expanse. That was really important for me that somehow whatever entity I create and as I was sketching this out and the play tunnel comes into being, I'm like, this is it. This is the form. And I know I'm going to make it orange because I want to like kind of visually represent that overwhelming, what it feels like to have a hijab on while, you know, being surrounded by the orangeness, which is my Muslim Khmer identity. So as you're taking this incredible kind of outfit installation work into the public spaces that you end up being photographed in, What kind of reactions are you getting from people when you're walking around and being present in this thing? The reactions that I've received over the years have been enormously awesome, first of all. The majority of reactions have been of wonder and curiosity and joy. There's a constant double take. People will pass the situation, whether it's the live performance or the photographs or videos, they'll pass it and then they'll do the double take like, wait a minute, what am I seeing here? Even when I go to sites of engagement and do a more staged video piece, I talk to the locals to make sure it's okay that they feel like they're part of this contemporary art conversation. And then 
you know, I come back and I come back with my team because it's, you know, it's 100 meters of fabric. And sometimes we only use 40 meters or 25 meters. So they see me sculpting the whole social sculpture, right? They see me as a main person that's finessing everything, that's sculpting the thing into place. I have inserted the legs. I always put the legs in place first. And it's always somebody who's willing on my team to do it or someone who is just game and excited. And then I sculpt the rest of it. And then I insert myself as the head. And people are watching this, right? So is there a person at the end the legs? Because it's so true. When you see the pictures of it, yes. you, see, you see the end of it, you're like, there's legs there. Are those? There, there, yes. <laughs> there is no Photoshopping. This is a live embodiment entailing two people that is occupying it's the so garment. Cool. But here's the thing. Locals will see us sculpting and putting the entities inside the bodies. And suddenly, when it's all formed and camera rolls, it's the same reaction. It's the... <gasps> the mouth agape, everybody's big <laughs> eyes. And I'm like, but you just saw us, you know, fake this situation. But I'm telling you like clockwork, it doesn't matter. There is something breathtaking and moving. And this is what's so beautiful about art is it allows people to have this suspension of disbelief. You know, they suspend their ideas that this is fake because I've just created a world where it is possible for just a moment. You know, what is it that you're seeing? Who are you seeing? What are you experiencing? And why are you so curious about what you're seeing? And why are you following me and my very gentle little movements? Because all I do is I literally sway. I sway and I'll, you know, do little gestures with my head to bring people in. I'll smile, I'll lick my lips, and I will, you know, just really be present, make eye contact, smirk. I will imitate people. The feet, meanwhile, are, you know, dangling and moving their toes and feeling out the space. And sometimes people will approach and tickle the legs and then I as the body react as well. So there's like, you know, this whole performativity, but you know, the whole point is to make them curious enough to look up the piece a little bit more and to think through what they're seeing because the entire face is modeled after a hijab and ideas around the modesty of a woman's dress. And then the orange is obviously the orange of the Buddhist robes. And it is putting these two religions together. And it is asking people to think about religious intolerance or religious tolerance and notions of religious hybridity in a different way. Something I haven't talked about are the bad reactions to the Buddhist bug. Yeah, tell me about those, Anita. Wow. So the very first solo exhibition was at a gallery space called Java Arts Gallery in Phnom Penh, Cambodia, a very well-known cafe that was showing artwork. And after the opening, a patron who visits that, a Cambodian woman who's kind of upper class, who visits that cafe often, 
came in and just went to town on the piece and made a fuss with the staff calling you know the owner of the gallery in saying i want to meet with her and then the gallery owner came who's also the owner of the cafe and talked to the woman the woman was like you need to take this down this is so offensive to buddhism this is not our buddhism i don't know what this is if you don't take this down i'm not going to come back to this restaurant and so she was like oh we're not going to take it down we don't have a problem with it we support anita fully and so she stood by me so that was one reaction the other reaction was the first solo exhibition of course you know it's a very new piece new to people and so it got a lot of press and then it went kind of viral online in the cambodia setting and there was a a group of muslims who saw the bug and it said that it's both you know buddhist and muslim it was a headline for one of the reviews and the person took the image and the headline put a big red X on it and said, this is not our Islam. And so then that circulated and it was in Khmer. So I had to have a person translate it for me because I'm not literate, I can only speak. But there was a big red X on my face, basically. And so I was like, what? What, what is this about? And so they explained it to me. Yeah, this person is not. So I was getting this pushback, right? from this small minority of supposedly Buddhist folks and supposedly Muslim folks who are pushing back against it, who thought that wasn't representative of their religion. One other moment that was very, really tugged at me was when I performed in front of the Sultan Mosque in Singapore. And that was with a Malay Singaporean curator who had hooked that up, loved my work, very supportive of it, got permission from the Sultan Mosque already to do the live performance of the bug outside of the mosque. Nobody was going to go inside the mosque. I mean, we all have these respectful ways that we know our religion, right? Absolutely. And again, these were all Muslim curators and organizers, young, who was interested in this conversation. And so during the live embodiment, an older man, an elder, walked across and he said in Malay, this is blasphemous. He was yelling. The curators were just panicking. He was just going off like he just was yelling. Everybody else, hijab, no hijab, religious, non-religious, Muslim, non-Muslim, all circled and were fine with it, right? But when he said this, and I tried to make eye contact with him because he stood right in front of me. And that moment, I was getting glassy-eyed because I knew exactly the kind of closed-mindedness of elders in that particular context that I have addressed before. You know, it's the same kind of folks who try to tell you you can't marry a certain man, you can't be at your grandmother's funeral at the head of the line because it's reserved for men. Like these are all things that, you know, I have experienced in my lifetime. And that moment with him looking at me with such disdain and thinking that he was right in saying that I would be whatever he was thinking, probably going to hell or something for a piece that was about bringing peace and joy and understanding. And so that was a hard moment. And, you know, I just was like, okay, well, it's one reaction.
you know, you mentioned that you were born in Cambodia during the terrible reign of Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge regime. What are some of those memories that you have and that your family has of that time that you feel enduringly shape the kind of artist and person you are? Yeah. So a lot of my talks, I begin with four photos, which are the closest thing I have to my, quote, baby photos. These photos I put at the beginning of my talk are photographs that were taken of our family when we arrived at the refugee camp in Thailand. The photos were taken by our Thai family who had gotten word that maybe we survived. And there's a photo with a care package with a brown wrapped box. And I was told later that they, the Thai family, brought us these goods to make sure we were going to be fed and clothed. Even the clothes we were wearing, we had changed into because everything was so tattered that they brought us clothes. My hair is pretty red probably scorched by the sun as we were forced to work in the fields. And I'm about four or five years old in this photo. My brother is, you know, being carried by sometimes my mom or my dad and different folks in there. My grandmother looks shell-shocked. My aunties are there. And it is just haunting, these photos, because... It reminds me, I position it in the beginning to remind me of the role of memory and photography and photography to continue where memory stops. You know, like I believe that part of the reason why I'm so attracted to documenting my performances is a result of me trying to mine for the moments that were taken during these atrocious years of my family's history. Now, what's poetic is that those five years that I was chasing for the memories that were taken from me or the life that I have a very difficult time recalling, I was given that chance for the five years of residency that I took from 2011 to 2015 in Cambodia as a result of my Fulbright work, I got those. So there is something, you know, alhamdulillah, God sent and poetic about, wow, like I lost those years, but I regained it in this whole other way. Like I raised my young family there, myself, my husband and my three daughters got five years in the country that is my mom's country, my dad's country, my motherland. And I think, you know, those are things that really fuel me because all those things that I lost, it just reminds me that your life and what you do in the world matters beyond your trauma. And there's a way that one can push for beauty and joy that doesn't have to be so profoundly about reliving those traumas. And everybody works through it differently. You know, I've had a lifetime's work ranging from writings 
to stage performance, to one woman show, to now this visual realm. And I just feel like with my visual works and my non-English based performance, like non-speaking, non-verbal performance, it allows more people to enter into the conversation. It allows more people um, across the globe, across the world to be part of it. And that is something that I am very interested in as an artist. You talked about growing up in the United States and being in Chicago and your parents kind of finding a home in a Muslim community. But as Hawaii Muslims, you were not black, you weren't Arab, you weren't Desi, Pakistani, Indian. That must have been an interesting experience, right? Finding your Muslimness within this landscape of Islam in the United States, which of course is is often at odds with itself, often struggles between African-American and indigenous perspectives, is, is deeply fragmented by class and, and power. And then comes this Hamai Muslim family into, into this very complicated, you know, nexus of Islamic relationships. What does it mean to be Muslim and Hamai in that kind of community environment? It was amazing, to be honest. We were so well loved and well taken care of. Like, I think about those years a lot because it was so diverse. We all came together. I mean, you're talking about in the 1980s as a third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade child, praying alongside Syrians, Egyptians, Pakistanis, Bangladeshi, and knowing where those countries were. You know, like that to me was what I loved and must have been the famous Malcolm X scene when he goes to Hajj for the first time and realizes, you know, the diversity of Islam of varying shades. And I really believe that at least growing up in the 1980s and in our local mosque, there was that diversity and there was that love and generosity. I just loved it and I think about that a lot and I still stay connected to so many of my friends from those years. In fact, with the Red Chador series and that performance, one of my childhood friends who's a doctor now, Sabrine Akhtar, lives in the Seattle area and I invited her to embody one of the Chadors. And so that was deeply moving for us to connect and for her to be in my performance piece. This is a non-artist and, you know, for us to recollect those years at the local mosque. And for me, the local mosque also gave me the ability to organize. Like I created a youth group of all activist Muslim women, girls, that was my really my, you know, entry into activism work. And we put on fashion shows that were for all girls. We went, you know, to swimming pools and had like an all girls swimming pool day and bowling. So all these things that I felt like I wasn't socially getting in 
the other worlds of it being just not sensitive to, you know, me not eating pork and observing Islam in a certain way and taking time out to pray. Like those things were appreciated in the mosque community where you didn't have to explain what you were doing and why you suddenly had to ditch out and wear a white garment and face a certain direction and do this like crazy thing that, you know, so it felt good. And uh, as you're describing this experience of growing up in this community, it now like starts to become even more clear that this thread throughout your work about collaboration and you mentioned the Red Chadar project. In this project, you and others dress in this deep red sequined chadar, almost almost this wrap which comes over the head and around the body. And you, you walk around in public. And in so many ways, it seems to mirror the impact of the Buddhist bug as this kind of pattern interrupt, right? But you're also the project director of something that I find really intriguing, and I hope you can unpack it a little bit for us, of a collaborative multimedia project called the 1700% Project. Tell us a little bit about this and how this came about. Yeah, so that is the project that was my thesis work. I decided to go back into the narrative form of writing. And so the 1700% Project is rooted in this poem that I made after 9-11. What happened was that I saw in my own community the heavy surveillance of my community. Aunties were having their hijab pulled. Uncles suddenly disappeared momentarily because some van came up and took them away. And then, of course, the rise of the hate against Muslims, but not just Muslims, people who were perceived as Muslims. And I started to pay attention to these hate crime reports. And then there was one little information that came out that said that this rise, this increase within that year was 1,700%. And so I developed a poem that is a compilation of hate crime reports. So I'm appropriating text and it's a cento, which means it's a hundred lines of found text that is crafted in such a way that the text then becomes more absurdist. And it's repeating the lines mistaken for Muslim, because as I dug up these hate crime reports over headlines, that was the common thing that kept coming up. Latinos mistaken for Muslim, Two women speaking Spanish, mistaken for Muslim. A woman wearing a Quranic charm, mistaken for Muslim. A Sikh, you know, mistaken for Muslim, whatever it is. And then the poem becomes more absurdist, you know, because there was two women or a woman eating a bagel and then she was attacked, mistaken for Muslim. And then the poem will increase it and it'll say, a bagel, mistaken for Muslim. Mosquitoes, mistaken for Muslim. But... I made it first as a written piece. Then I took it and I made it a performance piece. And then I took the poem and I put it as white vinyl text, really large on a white space. 
so you couldn't read the text until you smeared this stain that I made. What I did was I had four members of my community, diverse members of my community, Muslim and non-Muslim, memorize the poem, embody the poem for my thesis work, and then they delivered it. Every week they were supposed to come deliver the poem. After they've delivered the poem to whoever is there, the audience, they take the stain and they rub it against the wall. And it's only through the smearing and the staining that you start to see the words come. And those words are all 100 lines of this poem that is extracted from the hate crime reports, you know, that are a result of crimes committed against people perceived as Muslims. And that's the project. And then there's a video piece. That's the other iteration. It's very extensive. The video piece is one of my first collaborations with Masahiro Sugano of Studio Revolt. And we called upon my Chicago Muslim community because I said, we need to show people the face of Muslims. The Muslims that I grew up with were diverse. I don't know why people think that Muslims only exist now in Saudi Arabia or something. That's not true, you know. And so I put a community call out and people came and we did these video portraits and the video won a contest, a Chicago contest. The film was almost disqualified because they didn't think it fit the parameters of their kumbaya approach to one nation, you know, like Muslims putting on a good face to being like one nation. Anitha, you work in so many disciplines, with so many different collaborators, in so many different sites from the United States to Cambodia and places in between and beyond. So I wonder in this moment, as we're coming out of a hot pandemic into a long pandemic, as we are contending with a lot of social, political economic and spiritual fracture as we're facing down the climate catastrophe. And at the same time, we're trying to raise families and parent kids and build communities. I wonder as an artist, what's exciting you right now? Where is your work headed? Oof. I want to learn to be good to myself while being ambitious with my dreams. I haven't figured it out yet because I feel like to live this life, you know, as an artist and as a someone who tries to provoke, it is hard. It is a difficult hustle. You constantly come up against walls and obstacles and challenges and then to try to raise your family in all of this. You know, I think that's where it gets me. It's like sometimes you just want to take your family away, especially right now in the U.S. I just, I'm besides myself with all the mass shootings and the level of white supremacy and violence that is so obvious. You know, it's not even hidden anymore. And so I am afraid 
for my children. I'm afraid for their friends. I'm afraid for my extended family, for the people we call family of choice. Like, I haven't had this fear in this country all these years and even the other kinds of violences that I've experienced. I just think that they just don't make it easy for any of us to be here, you know, as people of color, let alone artists of color. And so, yeah, I have a lot of things to say and I'm not done. And I definitely think humor is very important. So one of the things that I am looking forward to doing is the Red Chador as do you know the 1950s B movie called Attack of the 50-Foot Woman? Yes, yes, I do. <laughs> so imagine Attack of the 99-Foot Chador. That is something that I'm very interested in creating as a video piece with miniatures where the Chador gets to just freaking smash things without realizing <laughs> how big of a presence she is. It's like she's just drinking water out of the lake and suddenly like it's it's floods, you know, everywhere. I love it's it. It's like I just want her to just have this presence and I and I think that, you know, it's just important to have that sense of humor when you're making these, you know, pieces for now, you know, and I think that we need to have more people sort of paying attention to the work and coming into the work. And then also just, you know, I think about Muslim futures as a phrase I've been thinking through, but it's also that our futures are linked, are intrinsically and necessarily linked to other futures. It's not an isolated thing. Our communities cannot thrive if we don't see our links to the queer community, black community, Asian Americans, Latinx, the indigenous folks, you know, issues of sovereignty, Palestinians, like, I think that's the thinking we cannot isolate ourselves. And we cannot be in our own little bubbles. And we have to really work on the solidarity and all of us do the hard work of putting complicated images out there, even if it's gonna be a little bit wrong for you know that elder that's pointing his finger at you and schooling you and saying you're blasphemous. <laughs> like sometimes we need to figure out what the edges and the lines are of our community to kind of, you know, push it. Anitha, who or what would you like to welcome into your guest house? I would say Prophet Muhammad's wives. I would really like to welcome them from the dead <laughs> into my house to really have a conversation with them. I think they would solve a lot of questions and things that I have as a feminist specifically Aisha and Khadija like I really want to sit down with those two women 
and have a little bit of tea time with them. I'd love to be a fly on the wall for that conversation between you and Khadija and Aisha. Anida, Ya Ali, thank you so much for being on This Being Human and for the incredible work that you do and will continue to do. It's inspiring and it's challenging and it feels like everything that art should be. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to This Being Human. You can see some of Anitha's work if you look in the show notes. This Being Human is produced by Antica in partnership with TVO. Our senior producer is Kevin Sexton. Our associate producer is Zana Shami. Additional editorial support from Lisa Gabriel. Mixing and sound design by Phil Wilson. Original music by Boombox Sound. Stuart Cox is the president of Antica Productions. Katie O'Connor is TVO's senior producer of podcasts. Lori Few is the executive for digital at TVO. This Being Human is generously supported by the Aga Khan Museum, one of the world's leading institutions that explores the artistic, intellectual, and scientific heritage of Muslim civilizations around the world. For more information about the museum, go to www.agakhanmuseum.org. The museum wishes to thank Nader and Shabin Muhammad for their philanthropic support to develop and produce This Being Human.